Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Ma'am, I'm afraid you really have to leave now. Leave? Never. I'm here representing the Northern Forest Wise Use American Freedom Alliance. We plan to occupy this federal land until you meet our demands. This is not federal land. This is a rainforest cafe. Not a very good one. Where's the mongoose Mai Tai I ordered? Uh, we cut you off. What, what happened to the every fourth drink free policy? Yeah, that is a policy you made up approximately seven drinks ago. You self-styled environmentalists are all the same. You're watermelons, green on the outside, red on the inside. Why don't you have your KBG overlord Al Goreski come and get me out, you commie cream puff? Let's come at this a different way. What exactly are your demands? That Hawkwood P. Dweebus finish book eight of his Conclave of Sultans series. At the end of book seven, Plantaneric was invaded by the Monclarian armies. Tozerland is left standing alone, and Queen Margarilla and her bastard son Mango Mojito had erected these massive defenses across a mountain pass lying along the border with Algonquia. But once again, the Hymerians deployed pink parrots and green pythons to kill the werewolf army. Are you sure some of those characters aren't from our drink menu? That's not the point. I need the next book or my life can't go on. Hawkwood Pete Dweebus has to write faster. But if you really believe in freedom, maybe you should accept that he's free to write on his own schedule. Oh, who told you that? Barack Hussein Greenpeace? I'll tell you what, I'll stand down if you'll bring out some Polynesian pot stickers and a double order of volcano sliders. Meanwhile, listen up as the scramble remembers Natalie Cole and tackles the Game of Thrones delay in the Oregon standoff. And now he's suing for the right to build a hydroelectric dam at the Rainforest Cafe waterfall. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, that, that land is my land. All right, yeah, later on the show today, and we, we don't do this this often, although we're going to do it a little bit more often. At the end of the show, um, we will talk about the Oregon standoff. Uh, I have booked no guest. It'll just be you and me. You'll be free to call in. That's coming up at the end, but memorize the phone number now, 860-275-7266. In the segment immediately preceding that one, we will talk about George R.R. R. Martin's announcement over the weekend that he cannot finish the latest installment of his Game of Thrones or Song of Fire and Ice series of books on schedule, which has all kinds of interesting consequences. Uh, but the main consequence is that many of his fans are very upset. Do they have a right to be upset? Upset? Is he under any particular obligation, moral or artistic, to deliver uh, when his fans want the books? We know that he's under certain obligations to deliver when his publisher wants the books, but he's blown those things off a long time ago. Anyway, that's still to come. We want to begin with a conversation about Natalie Cole. As you know, uh, probably a lot of you uh, heard on New Year's Day uh, about the passing of Natalie Cole. That certainly is when I heard about it. Uh, it was sad news, uh, and she died young. Um, and I think some would argue that she died somewhat underappreciated. Not that she wasn't a gigantic star. She obviously was. Uh, we're going to talk to Jason King, writer, producer, musician, and host of I'll Take You There, an R&B and soul channel from NPR Music, and founding, producer, uh, found, founding professor at Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU. Jason King, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. 
So, um, in a way, maybe the best way to, to start off the conversation is to hear a, a, a little uh, Natalie Cole. And we might as well begin with This Will Be. It's one of the ways in which she was sort of announced to the world in 1975. So, let's just hear a little bit of that. Oh, this will be This Will Be. All right, perhaps tarnished by its use as an eHarmony commercial, but not uh, permanently or irreparably damaged by that. Um, and I know that you think, Jason, that this might be her finest moment as a vocalist. Tell me why you think that. I think so. Uh, you know, when this song came out in 1975, um, Aretha Franklin was at the top of her game. Um, she'd had so many successively great releases in R&B. She'd set the standard for soul and funk so high starting in the late 1960s uh, into the 70s. And so when this song came out, it's written by Marvin Yancey and Chuck Jackson, who were uh, the songwriting production duo who did a lot of stuff for Natalie Cole, most of her classic early records. Um, this song clearly sounded like an Aretha Franklin song in terms of the arrangement, in terms of those horns, the just the, the stylings, the vocal stylings, the backgrounds and so on. Uh, so it was meant to reference Aretha, but it all, in some ways it goes beyond Aretha. It, it's very singular. It sounds like nothing else that was released in 1975 at the time. Um, and it really captures the sound of exuberance and exhilaration and just pure joy, which is why I think the song has been licensed for so many commercials over the years. And, you know, the, first of all, there's even a, a tale told that this was offered to Aretha or that, that it was maybe part of a batch of songs that she looked at and, and passed on initially or, or something. But there's sort of, I mean, there's some strange ironies here, aren't there, in the sense that Aretha, um, just a few days before the death of Natalie Cole, had another just sort of mic drop moment at those Kennedy Center honors. Uh, and suddenly a clip about her, even now in 2015, was completely viral. And, and there's a way in which Natalie Cole existed, not in the shadow of Aretha, but she was sort of a different generation and a generation, uh, Jason, that probably was a little bit different in its sensibility. In other words, you know, Aretha, uh, Aretha Sand was pure soul crafted out of her gospel background. You know, Natalie Cole, she seemed to be, to anyway, to belong to a generation that probably listened to a little bit of Janis Joplin, too. You know, was maybe influenced by, um, uh, by, by rock and roll. I think that's fair. Aretha Franklin was crafted out of that moment of uh, R&B meets gospel in the late 1950s, the Sam Cooks, the Ray Charles, and so on. Um, she definitely was more of a gospel singer who then moved into uh, jazz uh, on her early records at Columbia um, before really going into a kind of more gut-bucket soul-funk sound uh, in Memphis, working with Jerry Wexler and others. So that's Aretha's world. Natalie's is very different. She grew up listening to her father, uh, spending time, obviously, in her father's house, meeting great jazz singers and so on. Um, and she was inspired by pop. She was inspired by rock and a lot of different sounds. And so her sound is a real amalgam of different things, pop, um, uh, standards, uh, R&B, gospel, and it all comes together in this kind of synthesis. 
But that that first um, album that that contained uh, it was the inseparable album that contained this will be. It really was quite an announcement, right? I mean, it really was. It, there was just sort of no denying that there was a new voice on the scene, uh, and that 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 she could could bring it in in a fairly new way. It was huge, and the the thing at the time was who is going to be the successor to Aretha Franklin? Mm-hmm. Who can compete with Aretha Franklin? There were so many um, incredible singers who came to uh, public visibility in the aftermath of Aretha Franklin's, you know, um, you know, the, the tsunami that she uh, brought to uh, R&B music at the time. Uh, Shaka Khan and Minnie Riperton and Roberta Flack and so many others. But it was really Natalie Cole who um, kind of broke Aretha Franklin's Grammy winning streak because Aretha Franklin had won the best female R&B Grammy uh, for eight years consecutively. Uh, and it wasn't until 1975 when Natalie Cole took it that uh, clearly there had been a sea change. Did did that turn into any kind of uh, actual rivalry? Oh, sure. The, there's tons of tales throughout the history of R&B about the, the rivalry between the two, probably mostly on Miss Franklin's part. Um, and understandably so. She was seen as the Queen of Soul, and that's a title uh, that one wants to keep. And so when you have somebody who's a newcomer on the scene who – uh, is literally singing songs that were meant for you, um, and they're even sharing songs on the Inseparable album. There's a song called You that's, that was uh, Aretha also recorded. Uh, I think she was very threatened. Um, but I think over time, uh, they patched up their differences, and uh, in the last couple of days, Aretha Franklin did do a live tribute to Natalie Cole at one of her recent concerts by singing uh, Inseparable. It was a very beautiful moment. Um, actually, let's hear a little bit of the song Inseparable. That's how we'll always be inseparable. Just you and me. It's so wonderful to know you'll always be So, Jason King, as you're saying, you know, if anybody could pose a threat uh, to Aretha Franklin uh, uh, up on her pedestal as Queen of Soul, maybe it wasn't uh, Natalie Cole. But she did, she didn't really. I mean, she didn't really dethrone Aretha Franklin in any kind of ongoing sense. And there's almost I almost have this sense that, you know, I, she, everybody understood she had a great voice. She had some great songs. She had some songs that really penetrated and crossed over in interesting ways. Her cover of Bruce Springsteen's Pink Cadillac uh, jumps out uh, in my mind a little bit. But there's, uh, I almost have this feeling that she wasn't really completely um, appreciated and embraced, uh, except in one certain way, which we'll come to in a second. I, I'm, uh, first of all, is that even important, or should we just think about this woman and her work and, and what it was? Um, I think she made a huge splash in the 1970s. She didn't really have a disco career at a time when everybody was expected to do disco mm-hmm. music in the late 70s. Um, even Aretha Franklin released a disco album. Natalie Cole, she she did funk, she did soul, she did pop. She never really, truly had a real disco moment or a disco album. And then I think the thing that we have to mention is that starting in the late 1970s into most of the 80s, she was strung out on drugs. Mm-hmm. And her career really... Um, really faltered um, in a major, major way. I think if that hadn't happened, who knows? It's hypothetical. But she may have uh, continued on her upward um, streak and really made even much more of an impact in the world of R&B. But she comes back on the scene in the late 1980s 
with a string of more kind of synth-oriented pop material, um, material that's clearly crafted in the wake of singers like Whitney Houston and others. Um, so songs like um, uh, uh, Wild Woman Do, which I think was on the Pretty Woman soundtrack, Miss You Like Crazy. Um, they're all wonderful songs. Pink Cadillac as well, which is also kind of styled after Aretha Franklin's Free Way of Love. Um, they're all great, but I don't think they at all match the kind of quality of the music she was releasing in the 1970s. And, and then she takes this other sharp turn, which is um, to release, in particular, Unforgettable with Love. Uh, this is this um, album of standards, uh, of jazz st- standards and uh, and American songbook tunes. Well, we'll we just remind you, although I'm sure over the weekend you've heard this, but we'll hear a little bit of the title cut. In every way And forevermore And forevermore That's how you stay That's how you stay That's why, darling It's incredible That someone we're talking to Jason King, writer, producer, musician, host of I'll Take You There, an R&B and soul channel from NPR Music, founding professor at Clive Davis Institute for Recorded Music at NYU. Okay, so that title caught in the kind of weird, kind of ghostly duet with uh, her father. I mean, it's possible to have a multiplicity of opinions about that particular thing. But, but Jason, to me, what is really interesting about this, this album is far beyond that title cut. What you do have is this cascade of American songbook and jazz standards introduced partly to an appreciative audience that already knew them, but also her R&B audience that really didn't have much of a relationship with songs like you know, Avalon and, and Orange Colored Sky and Thou Swell uh, and, I mean, and Lush Life. Um, and, and in a way, you know, this, and I think this album sold like 5 million units in the U.S., 7 million units uh, worldwide. I'm sure there hasn't been an album of standards by anybody in the last 25 years that has had that kind of an impact. Oh, yeah, it was a, it was a huge moment um, culturally, uh, technologically, because of the nature of uh, the recording itself, the idea that she was singing with her father who passed away in the mid-1960s, um, that you could even do this um, from a production and, and technological standpoint um, was quite staggering. Um, and it was also just a really warm and kind of um, touching moment of, Natalie Cole, who at that point was really a survivor, um, reaching back to her roots and connecting with her father in this kind of public way. So it was a really important moment in that sense. But also, Colin, in the sense that you mentioned, uh, in terms of pop standards and the idea of doing this sort of jazz-pop synthesis hybrid, um, there had been a few attempts before. I mean, Shaka Khan had always been doing jazz material. Donna Summer had done a recording of Lush Life that Quincy Jones had produced. But to do a whole album and to take a real left turn like that, as Natalie Cole did, um, really was a brand new invention. And I think a lot of people started to do the same thing afterwards, especially if they saw the writing on the wall that maybe their career in R&B might not have the legs that it could or should. Um, It was a way to reinvent yourself is to go into jazz. So Vanessa Williams would do that later. Queen Latifah uh, would do that as well, and so many others. But I think when anybody else does it, 
maybe Vanessa Williams might be an, an exception. But with anybody, when anybody else does it, who comes out of a pop, rock, or R&B background, it does feel like a detour, and it feels like something they're kind of trying on. And I mean, it can be really completely horrific and dreadful, like, you know, Rod Stewart. or But even somebody really good like Annie Lennox, I don't think she sounds that great doing it. And I think part of it is because it's not really in the bloodstream. You know, and for Natalie Cole, it was in the bloodstream. She grew up the, you know, she grew up as, as her father's daughter. Um, she grew up just imbued with this music so that she could sing it and there'd still be a little bit of a pop or R&B edge sometimes to the way she cut into the vocal. But it really sounded, I mean, this was just so, so second nature to her. It wasn't like she was trying on a new outfit. It was like she was actually putting on her older, older clothes. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't I don't think it was fashion for her. I think it was something that she was rooted in and she was really returning to. Um, you know, for all of the comparisons of Natalie Cole to Aretha Franklin back in the day, some of which were uh, genuine, but some of which were also about PR and marketing, I actually think the real comparison there is maybe Nancy Wilson mm-hmm. uh, and Natalie Cole because Nancy Wilson is a singer who was known for being able to deliver standards, um, to deliver uh, in a kind of pop uh, influenced by jazz uh, stylings way, but she could also have, you could hear the gospel influence and other kinds of influences too. And so somebody like Na- uh, Nancy Wilson is probably a better model for thinking about uh, um, Natalie Cole's career. And so those standards that she released in the 90s, I mean, I think they're incredibly professionally done. Um, and she sounds, like you said, kind of at home. Mm-hmm. And I just think she educated a, a, a public that really, you know, I mean, now really everybody does cut an album of standards, you know, I mean, just waiting for the next one, the next old pop star who's going to do this. But it, these songs were not that familiar to a lot of people. And I just think she absolutely, you know, was a bigger bridge from sort of the jazz and American songbook audience to the general popular audience than than anybody since Louis Armstrong, probably. I mean, really sort of getting a whole bunch of new people to hear this music and, and really see it. I, yeah. Yeah, what it was. I think you're absolutely right about that. I think this, that she she doesn't get the credit for that. That's for sure. Um, you know, so, I never hear her being appreciated on that level. No, and she absolutely should be. I mean, that was a landmark uh, um, offering. So, um, Jason, at the end, I know this is something that you care about. I think it's a really great point. It's really important that, you know, I mean, we tend to know the the general audience tends to know about one or two or three singers in every genre. And so just in the same sense that Natalie Cole might not have been heard or understood exactly uh, as as fully a, as possible, and then there were singers kind of bubbling down well below the Natalie Cole uh, uh, level, suffering a, an even greater obscurity. You, one of the things you say is, you know, people should go and, and find out find out who the who the new Natalie Coles are. So, in your opinion, who are they? Who should people be people be listening to? Well, I think there's a huge expanse of great R&B music out there. You often hear that R&B is dead, um, no matter what the the charts say, no matter how many hits of Blurred Lines and those kinds of things come out. People always are in this uh, in this mode of thinking that R&B is either dead or dormant. Um, certainly, in a lot of ways, there's been a, a rise of a new kind of sound in R&B, uh, a sort of drifting, um, uh, kind of Aaliyah, post-Aaliyah sort of, uh, technological R&B that you might call alternative R&B, but there's a lot of straight-ahead, sort of traditional, great R&B singing that still exists. So some of the singers I, I think we can mention in that context, Lettucey, Avery Sunshine, Layla Hathaway, there's so many, and uh, those are just a few of the ones that stick out to me. 
All right. Well, listen, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this has been Jason King. Uh, you should check out I'll Take You There if you haven't already, an R&B and Soul channel from NPR Music. Let's go out with a little bit more Natalie Cole. This is I'm Catching Hell, the live version. I'm catching hell Living here I just want you to come back, baby, come back, cause here's where you belong. And welcome back. This is our Monday Scramble, when we scramble around from topic to topic and scramble to figure out at the last minute what our show is going to be about. Special thanks to producer Betsy Kaplan got this show together uh, in a hurry today for us, as usual, uh, and uh, to Kion Wolf for making it sound so great. So, um, the the first one of the first times that Brian Slattery was ever on our show, Brian Slattery, writer, musician, editor at the New Haven Review, and arts editor for the New Haven Independent, uh, currently involved in serially writing with three other authors uh, uh, on an, an urban fantasy story called Bookburners. Uh, and plus, you're all waiting for the uh, the five sequels to The Family Hightower. Uh, but uh, the, one of the first times Brian Slattery was ever on the show was a show we were doing, it's like 2010, 2011, something like that, uh, about people who have a hard time finishing m- massive opuses, whether it's Larry Kramer uh, or or Brian Wilson or Guns N' Roses or D'Angelo or and all these uh, uh, Charles Ives, all these examples uh, came up, writers and uh, musical creators who uh, weren't able to finish some big thing. And at the time, Brian mentioned George R.R. R. Martin, who was really famous among a certain audience. But to me at the time, he was, oh, yeah, that guy. I kind of have heard of that guy. Uh, but even then, he was kind of famous for having some trouble delivering the product on time. Now he's much, much, much more famous, and he's still having problems. So we have to get Brian Slattery back. We had to shine the Brian Slattery uh, signal against the sky uh, with his insignia, and he's uh, come flying back to the rescue. So, Brian, uh, over the weekend, George R. R. Martin announced in a very public way, in a way that t- uh, authors typically do not do, but announced on a blog or not a blog uh, to his audience that uh, he was having some problems meeting his deadline. Um, And this tends to excite two different kinds of responses from his readership. Uh, So we can talk about both of those responses. But before we do that, is there anything else you want to say to put this all in context? Um, Other than probably to like reveal my bias from the start, which is that I've had a lot of sympathy for him ever since I've heard about how you know how he keeps missing deadlines and you know i read i read his blog uh i read his blog this weekend with with even more sympathy than usual you know he seems to just be under an incredible amount of pressure and i i uh my my heart went out to him more than it went out to the people who are angry with him but um my my wife and i have been arguing about this guy ever since we learned about his predicament and uh you know sure enough the the blog thing also Meant that we argued over dinner about whether he was, whether he doesn't owe people anything, or whether he is uh, being delinquent in his services. <laughs> right. So this in 2009, that when you, when you were on before, you were kind of referencing this um, this furor, this tumult uh, that uh, got set up in 2009 when he was having another deadline problem, yeah. and that oca- occasioned a passionate response from a fellow author Neil, Neil Gaiman, who, right. like you, 
um, supported Martin and famously wrote, George R.R. R. Martin is not your bitch. By which he meant sort of, you know, if you, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you like the books, read the books. He'll get the books done when he gets them done. Yeah. Uh, he'd rather read a book by a contented, fulfilled author who feels as though he or she has had the room to get the, the, bring the work to its proper fruition than something that's rushed to meet a deadline. Yes. So th- and that's sort of where you are, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that nobody wants the next book to be bad, right? That's, that's kind of a, and, and that, that's pretty much what he was saying with his blog. You know, he was saying, look, I, I've, I've, written, I've written a book that I, don't, that I don't think is very good, and I want it to be better than this. Um, but I think that, I mean, he's in a really unusual circumstance in that, that, in that the whole sort of, you know, production juggernaut of HBO is sort of hot on his heels. And it's sort of him versus like an entire production team, you know, that can get a lot more done a lot faster than he can. And and like, I just can't imagine what that pressure is like. I, I mean, I I think about if I were in his position, I, I I imagine sort of you know disconnecting the phone and possibly burning down my house and then moving to an island to finish the book and saying you know nobody even talk to me until this thing is done so I can you know, move on with my life. <laughs> right. Well, we'll come back to the HBO thing in a second, but let yeah. me just sort of, um, for the sake of argument, um, talk, uh, I'll sort of pretend to be your wife, um, <laughs> at, least, at least in this one uh, area. So, um, you know, I mean, I think for some people, the argument might be, well, where does this kind of work fall in the artistic spectrum? Mm-hmm. And I, for the sake of argument, I'll say that it kind of falls between, somewhere on a continuum between, a freestanding novel, you know, that just exists all by itself and is to be read only by itself, and the work of a serialist, like Dickens doing a lot of his work in newspapers, right. or or the incredible pressure of the daily cartoonists, I don't know how they survive it, it's why sure. Gary Trudeau and Bill Waterston and, and, and people like that just sort of burn out, like Gary Larson and burnout is just so, so hard. So George R.R. R. Martin is somewhere between those two poles, right? These are not freestanding books. They are meant to be read as a series. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so it's a little bit different from just a freestanding novel. It's not quite as tethered to a production schedule as the work of a true serialist like Dickens would be. Right. But it's not like he doesn't owe your wife anything, you know? He, <laughs> he, he wrote book five and he said there'd be a book six. Where the hell is book six? Right. Right. I mean, I mean, I think I think there's a much bigger question about that. That's sort of like uh, almost pretty specific to epic fantasy. You know, the, the sort of thing that he's doing, um, where you know the, the the guy who sort of started the genre had the luxury of having finished the whole thing before mm. any of it. You know, they, they we're talking about Tolkien. Like, right. you know, he finished the Lord of the Rings and he thought it was one big book, and his publisher split it up into three books because they were worried that it wouldn't sell as one big book, and. Suddenly, that format became just the way you do things, and I don't think anybody since then has done that. You know, where they write the whole thing first and then publish it as as you know separate volumes. And it's I, I mean, like a, I, like I said, this this goes back to my incredible sympathy for this guy because I think it's one thing to write, I, you know, in some ways like Charles Dickens, uh, you know, rigged the game a little bit in that he had, you know, he was talking about a real place that he could refer to whenever he wanted and like the a lot of those stories like are are well geared toward doing serial work like that but then like poor george r R. martin has this whole thing of having to build this enormous world (laughs) out around everything that he does and all of that is like very very time consuming and i and 
I can't imagine what happens when you, you just when what happens like when what he described in his blog, right, where he realized he sort of made a mistake, mm. and he has to go back and revise like immense amounts of material, <laughs> you know, just because he just because he's not happy with something that happened 300 pages ago. Right. So, and I mean, with with these books that exist, you know, in a sequence uh, as part yeah. of a, a series, I mean. First of all, there are different kinds of deadline pressures. Getting ready for this today, I read about a different series, one that I'd never heard of before. I think it's called Monarchies of God, and the author, I think his name is yeah. Kearney or Carney. And he admitted that he finished one of his books way too early, too fast. You know, he, he was under that kind of pressure. Yeah. And I think he went yeah. back and rewrote the book and re-released it in the form that he really thought it should have been in. Sure. Uh, but that he sort of caved to the kinds of pressures that Martin is resisting now. Now, on the other hand, Brian, we know one of the hazards here, here is you could die and we certainly wish George R. R. Martin a, a long life but Robert Jordan really did leave everybody in the lurch uh, totally. when he left the earth right totally I mean Robert Jordan stands as the like cautionary tale for people who are thinking of embarking on some enormous fantasy series you know I'd, I mean and I think that like you know in, in both cases you know Robert Jordan certainly didn't think that he was going to get you know terminally ill before he could finish it and I I suspect that George R. R. Martin, even in his wildest dreams, didn't imagine that he would be writing the last couple of books under this level of scrutiny and also, you know, responsibility to like now, you know, now also kind of guide a TV series. You know, when he thinks seven books at first, I think he was just thinking, well, I'll be in my house writing seven books and I'll put them out and it'll be fine versus, you know, I'll be writing seven books and... And sort of being involved in a TV production. <laughs> right. And I think there's another, yeah. there's a lot of other tensions here. One of the other tensions yeah. is between people, people don't know what writers do. You know, I mean, even one writer doesn't know what another writer uh, does. I mean, Nietzsche didn't know what Flaubert did. Sure. You know, nobody really knows what another writer is doing. And, and it's very hard for a writer. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, Roy Blunt one time wrote this great essay about sort of um, things that writers need. One of them was he, he felt writers needed like a coverall that they could put on some kind of uniform that would indicate they were writing. You know, have like their name <laughs> written on the. So like, OK, I'm writing now so that people in your life can't pester you to do other stuff. Yeah. You know, because yeah, for sure, because Nobody really believes that you're about to write or that you're writing or anything. So there's sort of that. But then there's yeah. also this sense that other people have, like, yeah, so put your cover all on, get your damn book done. And, and people who aren't writing and who aren't that particular writer, there's no way for them to judge, really, whether that writer is working hard enough or whether that writer would benefit from a more structured schedule or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that – I mean, this, this is all going to sound very precious, but I think that, I think that everybody, you know, from – from, you know, people writing ad copy up to people writing, you know, some, you know, 10,000-page magnum opus, like, need a fair amount of concentration in order to get it done. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, the longer the thing, the more concentration you need. And I, I sort of suspect that the last couple of years for George R. R. Martin have involved a great deal of sort of necessary publicity. You know, it's just, just having to travel around and shake a lot of hands and eat a lot of lunch and... You know, do all this kind of stuff that's really important to keeping the whole operation he's involved in going, but are like totally not conducive to getting anything done. <laughs> right. Other than that, you know, but like that's all that's all a really important part of his job now. 
Although maybe you could have Tyrion Lannister go on a publicity tour or something. <laughs> to Use his life and inject it into his, his fiction. Well, you know, Brian, uh, we should talk about one other thing here, too. There's another kind of tension that this sets up, and there's, it's the tension between the people who are familiar with the series from having read the books and the people who first, anyway, watched the HBO series. And yeah. this has been a very uncomfortable um, set of relationships, and the people who've read the books tend to take a slightly snarky attitude at times towards the people who've only seen the TV series, right. and the, so the people in the TV series completely freak out when the Red Wedding happens or something, and the people who read the books go, well, if you'd read the books, yeah, this, wouldn't be such a big, this wouldn't be such a shock to you. Yeah, and, and so now something very awkward is about to happen, which is totally. the TV series. And I'm not sure, by the way, that most people would accept what you said, that it's like easier for the TV series. It's like, yeah, they have to go to like Croatia and Iceland. and stuff. <laughs> like George R. R. Martin doesn't have to go anywhere. He just has to sit right. there and write the thing. But somehow or other, despite the enormous production uh, obstacles that there are to doing something like this with this huge cast, they're kind of about to lap him, right? They're, they're going to... And, oh, yeah. and, and the, the plot lines aren't identical. There are different sort of mutations of the plot depending on the book, whether it's the book or the TV series, but suddenly the TV series people may be a little bit of ahead of the book people. Totally, yeah. and you're 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 stumbling into exactly what my wife and I argued about last night, which is that she feels that like George R. R. Martin's responsibility, to the extent that he has one, is is to those people who have like faithfully been reading the books, you know, and that's how they want that's how they want Game of Thrones to be. You know, they want it to be a series of books, and they couldn't care less about the TV series. And she says it's really, it's really kind of crummy of him to put them in the position of having to wait for this book and then meanwhile attempt to avoid all of the spoilers that are almost certainly going to come out. You know, it's like I don't, this, this is a, like, I don't, I don't really even follow Game of Thrones, and I know the story because the spoilers are everywhere. <laughs> you, know, you can't, you just can't avoid them. You know, and she says, like, he is betraying his readers who have, who have, stuck with him for a long time and like i you know th this is this is the glimmer of you know the of you know me trying to have an open mind about this question where i do i do see where she's coming from that it's you know these are the people who have been with him from the beginning and he's you know in some sense he's kind of selling them out right i mean it's it's uh I mean, you do want to honor that somehow, but I, once yeah. again, there's no way that nobody ever made any kind of contract with anybody else that's uh, enforceable. I mean, ultimately, I think your side of this, Brian, wins just because, you know, I mean, writers ultimately are going to do what they're going to do, and you really can't make things. Even if we believe that George R.R. R. Martin would really benefit from chucking aside this whole notion he has of himself, you know, that it takes him a little longer than most writers, that he yeah. needs to write a certain way. Even if you could sort of say, nope, I'm going to give you a life coach, and he's going to make sure <laughs> that you write every day. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that that, that, that would work. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the part that I'm sort of curious about is, like, given that so much money is riding on this whole thing, I, I'm, you know, part of me is surprised that that sort of thing hasn't happened. You know, that either his editor or, you know, some third person hasn't come in to help him, like, revise what he's written so they, so they can put it out as fast as possible, you know? I mean, it'd be, who knows, like, why that hasn't happened. But, you know, it's, it's I'm tempted to think that, that somebody sort of broached the idea at one point and that somehow it didn't happen because of some, you know, who knows why. But it's it's one of those sort of interesting inside baseball questions, you know, that later on it might be revealed that, you know, it just turned out somebody said, let us help you. And he said, no way. And then, you know, now 
five months later, here we are. Anyway, here we are. Brian Slattery, so great to talk to you. Uh, writer, musician, editor at the New Haven Review, arts editor for the New Haven Independent. And, and, and sympathizer of George sympathi- R. And, of course, working on book five of the Family <laughs> Hightower series. Uh, get that get that done. Go put That's your, right. Get go, back to work. Go put your cover all on and get back writing. When we come back, I want to give you the phone number right now, because when we come back, we'll be talking about another place where winter is coming. That's Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Headquarters, which has been taken over by protesters. Uh, and there's a, a, something that resembles a standoff. So if you're waiting for the George R.R. R. Martin books and you want something else to follow, I suppose you could follow this. I have some thoughts about how this could best be handled, this situation that's gathering a lot of headlines right now. But you may have some, too. So feel free to call us during this uh, final segment. I'm not booking a guest. It'll just be you and me. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You can tweet at us at WNPR Collins. This is the announcement I never wanted to make. I have not finished today's credits and thank yous. I know you're disappointed and you're not alone. I hope to have them done by later today. For now, you can have my notes. Producing me, Betsy Kaplan, interns eaten by a dire wolf, Greg Hill, something about Twitter, Bill Curry, played by like a big hairy bird, some kind of cheap joke about the here and now staff, Uh, tomorrow a show on ugliness, and now, oh, and now. Back to Colin. All right. So, you know, we had this retreat to talk about our show. uh, And one of the things we talked about was that we don't talk to the callers enough. I used to have this show for, I don't know, many, 16 years I did a show on a different radio station where I mainly talked to callers. We would have some guests, but talking to callers was kind of the thing. Um, And I, I realized, you know, I mean, in order to do it, to do it well, I felt like maybe we needed to not have a guest because we have these great producers and they book these wonderful guests and then it's kind of hard to get to the callers. So once in a while, one of the things we're going to do is that I'm just going to talk to you and you, you, you can feel free to talk back to me. Once again, the number is 860-275-7266. Not about anything, but I mean, right now we're going to talk about a specific thing. Uh, 860-275-7266. So you've probably been watching this story develop. It's going up in, in Oregon, uh, in eastern Oregon. Uh, the Malheur National Wildlife Headquarters has been taken over by these protesters. And some of them are local protesters, a small knot of them were local protesters, concerned about a specific thing, about the plight of the Hammond family. And we can get a little bit more into that. But they basically, uh, two members of the Hammond family are scheduled to go back to prison today uh, for kind of these, kind of like extra prison time, uh, anyway, uh, for uh, arson charges. Um, which, which stem from some fires that they actually admit that they set on their land once in 2001 and once in 2006. That's almost like not the plot of this somehow because it got taken over by a group of basically land use anti-federal government extremists uh, led in particular, particular by the notorious Bundy family, the uh, the offspring and, and family of Cliven Bundy, uh, who's been part of stories like this before. And so what you have now there in Oregon is this thing that kind of looks like a standoff. Uh, they've taken over this freezing cold uh, little you know, wildlife refuge headquarters. There was nobody else there. I mean, they don't have hostages or anything like that. 
But they've taken it over. They're armed, and there's a kind of standoff going on, and they've got demands relating to the Hammond uh, family. I'd love to hear what you think about this as you're watching it. I, I will tell you a little bit first what I think about it. Um, once again, the number, 860-275-7266. We already have a call from Ted in Guilford. 860-275-7266. So... Um, one of the things that I, I was I've been sort of watching this develop uh, online and in the digital world, there's been a lot of commentary uh, about the, the idea that these people are terrorists or that they're engaged in an act of armed sedition um, and they're being called white ISIS and all this stuff. So um, or vanilla ISIS, I guess that's one of the hashtags now. So um, and, and, you know, I mean, I sort of understand that argument, but really. Or, or at minimum that this is a crime and it needs to be dealt with as a, as a criminal matter. Here's what I think. I think the federal government should do as close to nothing as it possibly can. Uh, I'm really in favor of a light touch here. I think, first of all, it's too bad that this is getting as much media attention as it is getting because obviously that's one of the things they're in it for. Uh, there's nothing you can do about that, but it is unfortunate. Um, and I think making it as boring as possible for them is is the better course. Um, I certainly you don't want any martyrs coming out of this. You don't want anything like that. And probably by doing as as close. And another thing that should not happen is that nobody very high up the food chain of the federal government should talk about this. In other words, the highest ranking official that I, that they've talked to so far that's who that's the highest it should ever get. They shouldn't and and it, and it shouldn't be talked about either by President Obama or any cabinet secretary or anything like that. Just let it sit down there and let it kind of play out in the most um, denatured and harmless fashion possible. I could talk a little bit more about why I think that's a good idea, but we also, as I say, we do want to take your calls. If you're watching the Oregon standoff and you have your own ideas about this, or maybe you do think that this is an act of treason or sedition or terror, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266. So here's Ted in Guilford. Hi, Ted. Hi. Um so one thing that I, about this this states' rights land situation that I've always found a little funny is you have ultra conservatives looking to uh, control the the land rather than the BLM and Clive and Bundy you know was looking basically for free grazing rights um, which to me if you look at it is is welfare no matter how you slice it and these are the same people who would do everything in their power as, you know, Tea Partyists and the, that whole wing to deny those very things to urban people who need them. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to quickly throw out, when you look at the states' rights movement, it's been taken up by a lot of legislatures uh, in, in these states, and the very people who are funding it are usually mining and, and fossil fuel industri industrialists who are probably not going to do much or care too much about the rights of the ranchers. Right. Uh, I, mean, I just wanted to throw those two things out, and uh, I'll let you comment off the air. All right. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for that call. Yeah, actually, NPR did a great piece about this uh, last week. Before this whole mess got started, uh, did a great piece about what he talked about. It involved specifically the state of Utah, where there's a big conversation going about this and uh, how legislators there are playing a key role. And it really, a lot of it is about money as opposed to being about freedom. Uh, and there may be some people who are out there uh, as, um, as sort of freedom extremists who are, in effect, kind of stalking horses for this whole question. But, yeah, down the line, there are people who basically want 
the the use of this man this land for for profit, uh, particularly for mining uh, and for drilling, um, also for grazing. But the mining and the drilling stuff is really really important. I'm not saying it's that's necessarily what's going on in Oregon, but that's that's a behind a lot of this. There are some people who are very serious about issues of freedom and liberty. Uh, but there are also uh, some people who basically want the bucks. Um, I, I, I'm going to come back for a second to just sort of say that, uh, first of all, the Hammonds, the people who are who are the cause uh, of all this, who are the reason for this protest, have said that they really, they I, I don't know if disavow is too strong a word, but they've essentially distanced themselves a little bit from the more extreme uh, members of the people who are protesting on their behalf, the people who kind of seized this land. I mean, there are people locally protesting this who are genuinely concerned about the Hammonds and feel as though um, they're getting a raw deal. I'll say, not knowing too much about that case, I didn't really have a time, time to sort of find out a little bit more about the judge's reasoning. It's actually, at least on the surface of it, from a formalist point of view, not a really great thing. They had served their sentences, and the judge announced, uh, the way I, I understood it anyway, that they hadn't served enough and it's assigned them more time, which is, it's really unusual. I, mean, I, I follow a lot of this kind of stuff, and you just don't see that very often. So, I mean, it, it's not surprising to me that that would get a lot of people um, excited. Uh, and, and you can understand why, in fact, the Hammonds might have some sympathizers around them right now. I want to say that we have a little time left and we have phone lines open. So if you want to, A, tweet at us at WNPR Colin, or if you want to call in at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. But this intrigued me online because I was I was reading comments made by people who I typically agree with uh, and I wasn't agreeing with them. First of all, I don't think you can really call them terrorists yet or they're certainly not white ISIS. I don't know if they're armed seditionists. That's what Charlie Pierce called them uh, in uh, um, in Esquire. I mean, when you look at a situation like this, there's there's two things you can do with a situation like this, or two maybe hopes you can have about a situation like this. These guys, they're in there, they've seized this headquarters, but there's really no breakage yet, right? There's, I mean, no, there's no hostages, nobody's been hurt. So you look at a situation like this and you think, what do I want to do with this? Do I want to ratchet it up or do I want to ratchet it down? And it does seem, if you go in the digital universe, everybody's always in favor of ratcheting it up. Let's let's call it treason, you know. And if you call it treason or if you call it sedition or if you say that they're terrorists, then there's like a whole set of things. There's a whole playbook that kicks in. Uh, and that playbook does involve ratcheting this situation up and dealing with it in a fairly extreme way. I'm a big ratchet it down thing. As far as I'm concerned, if, you know, if there's a way to get these guys kind of tired out and bored and send them all home, and I'd be in favor of just forgetting this ever happened. I don't think creating martyrs or other cause celebs or anything like that helps anybody's interest, at least not anybody's interest except the interest of the extremists and the Bundy types in, in the first place. Just put the pin back in the grenade and go home. Um, and the other thing you got to learn is to listen. One of the biggest mistakes that was made in some of the celebrated standoff situations that went south, notably Waco, is just not listening. Even if you think these guys are full of BS, you just still listen to what they say uh, and indicate them to them that you're listening to what they say. Um, listen to their demands. You can even pretend that some of these ideas make sense to you. Maybe they do make sense to you, but listen, because a lot of times they'll tell you without even meaning to what it will really take to get this thing over with. 
uh, and then you just you just run that play. They'll actually tell you what the solution is. All right, we've got some people calling in here. I'm going to go to the phones. We will start with Ruth. Uh, no, with Jim in Bar Hampstead. Hi, Jim. Hi, how you doing, Carlos? Good. Uh, I'm calling to make the observation that, you know, my experience are people that take up arms against the government and seize buildings you know, would fairly well fit the definition of a terrorist in my book. And secondly, I think that there's these, this particular movement has been treated with kid gloves where other movements have not. And I don't know if that's racially based or not, but it certainly seems to me there's two different standards. Yeah, I and see what I... the answer off the air. Yeah, sure. I see what you're saying. And, and what I'd say about this is, first of all, we wouldn't want... Uh, in other words, I think we understand that the other movements, whether you're talking about the Occupy Wall Street movement or probably more significantly, the series of protests that have been part of the Black Lives Matter movement and which have resulted in police violence against protesters, that wouldn't be uh, uh, something we would want to emulate here. I mean, you, you, you may be right that there's a double standard that's based on race, race, but that's not an argument for escalating this thing so that it becomes uh, a more violent confrontation. I mean, with all of these things, you kind of want it to be nonviolent. Now, I realize there are some differences here. These guys are armed and typically Occupy Wall Street people and uh, and Black Lives Matters uh, pro- Black Lives Matter protesters are not armed. That this is a much more forceful thing. Still, I think you know, I don't know, calling it terrorism once again that kicks in a certain kind of playbook, and it, it also. Um, seems to be like a, a, a position you can't very easily retreat from. So uh, we've got a call from Ruth and Sandy Hook. Hi, Ruth. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. First of all, I have to tell you how much I like you and, and like and admire the shows you put on. My concern is um, that we need to listen to people like that speak for Southern Poverty Law that have been alerting us to the this kind of, you know, anarchist. Let's separate. Uh, we want to... You know, we don't want to be part of the government. We don't have to listen to the federal laws or, you know, the so states' rights that they would shoot a sheriff or something. I mean, there's, there's really – I know what you're saying, and I hear you in terms of, you know, not getting uh, the situation worse. But we tend to back down from these kind of guys like Bundy on, you know, my my cows can feed for free. Right, exactly. I don't mean to cut you off, but we actually sort of are out of time. Great point to end with. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that these people don't need to be monitored, watched, dealt with. I'm just sort of saying with a situation like this one, better to put the pin back in the grenade than pull the whole grenade apart and throw it. The last word for today's show is not likely to be finished tomorrow or next week. Kion. You can blame my travels or the distractions of other projects. Uh, Kion. What, Greg? Instead of writing this update about how you haven't written the last word, you could just, you know, write the last word. Well, now there's no time.